0: Don't worry, you're not alone. As entrepreneurs, we are all trying to figure it out. Daniel Gallardo launched Kinkara USA in 2009 and has grown it into the premier brand of Japanese-style fly fishing rods through a combination of beautiful branding and aspirational marketing. But like every founder, he struggles with the same issue all entrepreneurs do, In this episode, we discuss how he's still figuring out his product management cycle, hiring, and the ever-vexing issue of how to delegate when you already know how to do it all so well yourself. We also discuss how to keep things fresh when your products don't change every year, some of the ways we vet potential employees, and his startup story of finding manufacturers and launching the brand. There's a little bit of everything in this episode, so cast your attention right this way.
1: Welcome to The Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup
0: stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including Bikerumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If
1: you're thinking of starting your own business, The Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle.
0: So, Daniel, you started Tinkara USA, which makes fly rods for. Tenkara style fishing, which is a Japanese style of fly fishing. Before we dive right into how you started the company, just kind of like real quick, what's the elevator pitch for your company?
1: Yeah, Tenkara is a method of fly fishing that comes from Japan. It's a real simple way to fly fish. They use just a rod line and fly, no reel. So fly fishing is this very appealing type of fishing or sport, and a lot of people want to get into it, but it's also very intimidating. And Tenkara just keeps things very, very simple. Rods are portable, so it's really good for the bikers out there, for the backpackers and so forth. And uh, it just gets more people to fly fish.
0: Cool. Yeah, I think there is this romantic notion of just kind of getting out there. And Honestly, for me, I don't even know if it's so much the fishing, although I like the idea of it and I enjoy doing it. It's really just more like the idea of getting out away from everything and kind of letting your mind sort of focus on one thing, but also sort of be free at the same time. And uh, I'm curious, like, how did you get into this?
1: Yeah, so I grew up fishing, uh, and I started fly fishing when I was about 14, 15. And uh, and then I had been fly fishing for about 13, 14 years when I discovered Tenkara. Um, I married a Japanese-American woman, and when we started talking about visiting her relatives in Japan, uh, I started doing some research, and I learned that in Japan they had this you know traditional method of fly fishing that i had never heard about and when i got to visit japan um, you know i visit the tackle shops and i loved the equipment you know the the clerk showed me a fishing rod and as fishing rods they telescope from 20 inches in the collapsed size to about 12 feet in length when it's extended and when the clerk showed me a rod i was like oh man that's gonna be perfect for backpacking um and then he told me i only needed a line and to go with it. Uh, So I bought a rod, brought it back, and I could not find any information in English about how to do it, you know, the different techniques and so forth. Uh, But I started falling in love with the simplicity of the method. And I thought that people needed to know about it, so I decided to create Tenkara USA to introduce Tenkara outside of Japan. Uh, And we did that in uh, 2009 is when I went live and started introducing his method of fishing to people
0: all right i want to i want to talk about like how you started manufacturing the rods but Mm -hmm. or the poles i guess i don't know i guess do you call it a rod (laughs) or a pole or what do you call it
1: we typically call them rods. Okay. Uh, you know, there's a joke that some people say the difference between a pole and a rod is usually about 150 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's no right or wrong, uh, but I think I, I just like the word rod um, a little bit better. <laughs>
0: okay. So what what strikes me about what you said, you know, how you got it started in the U.S., like why you started the, a version of it here is that... Um, your family, your parents, uh, if I remember right, are not, they, they don't speak much English, if any, and you guys migrated here for, with them, or you were born there, came here from um, South America, right?
1: Yeah, actually, my accent is from Brazil. Uh, that's uh, that's what your listeners are gonna be hearing. Uh, my parents actually still live in Brazil, so I came here as an exchange student when I was 17 uh, to finish high school. You know, It's something that a lot of people, if they can, they will do, um, mostly to learn English. And I immediately felt very much at home. I lived in California for uh, for my first year you know, in high school. Uh, absolutely felt at home and decided to stay for college. So I stayed in California for college for uh, until, until I finished that. And um, in college I met my wife, so I stayed here. But my entire family is still in Brazil. They don't speak any English. <laughs> they are visiting for Christmas, which will be fun, but uh, uh, they're still all down there. Nice. So let's talk a little
0: bit about the manufacturing of it, and and I want to just kind of reiterate from the design standpoint, it is a telescoping design. So I think your shortest model now shrinks down, you know, it kind of collapses on itself to what, like 12 inches, 13 inches?
1: Uh, 20 inches, actually. We are working on one that's going to be under 15 inches, uh, but that's still not out. Um, But yeah, 20 inches is the shortest rod okay
0: and that's what kind of caught our eye you know at bike rumor initially is because you could crush this thing down and throw it into a camelback take it out on a you know bike ride where you're going to end up where you could fish or on a multi-day you know if you want to try and catch some of your own food so it's, it's a super cool design so 2009 i guess like when did the idea start was it had to have been before 2009 if you went live with
1: it yeah, um, and uh, and I should mention, since you talked about biking and fishing, hashtag bike fishing is becoming a very popular <laughs> thing, uh, but yeah, so in 2009 is when we went live, April 2009, but things happened pretty fast. So uh, in uh, let's say August 2008, my wife and I went to Japan, uh, it was my first visit to Japan, and. We back backed around for a couple of weeks, and then we visited visited some of her relatives uh and that's where I first saw the rod august two thousand eight and I bought a rod and as soon as I came back from the trip, I started fishing with it uh but interestingly enough i um I think I've written about this as soon as we landed back from japan i um a couple of friends picked us up at the airport and they took us out for a brunch, you know we got back in the morning and one of the things that I immediately started talking to them about was these telescopic rod, you know, the rods that are used in uh, this method of fishing. And these friends, they're not fly anglers at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're mountain bikers and they were climbing partners, but they really didn't get into fishing. But as I started talking about it, they seemed to be very interested uh, because the rods are collapsible, you know, your kit can weigh like five ounces, it doesn't really add much. Uh, to a backpacking trip. And in the middle of the conversation, as soon as I got back from Japan, I kind of jokingly mentioned that, oh, maybe I should start a business with that. (laughs) And and I was the kind of guy that, you know, I went to business school, and that's my background, and I grew up with a lot of entrepreneurs in the family. And I always liked the idea of starting a business. Uh, But up until this point, I've had a lot of different business ideas. And most of them were absolutely stupid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> most of the business ideas I've had up to that point, it's like, I think for a couple of days, like, oh, this would be really cool if somebody did whatever. And a couple of days later, I would realize this was absolutely a stupid idea and I should not do anything with that. <laughs> uh, so this is just the latest of the, those ideas, but it kind of stayed with me, you know, like I mentioned that as a joke, but, and I, I honestly hadn't even thought about it until the very moment, and then for about I don't know. In the next two weeks, it kept brewing in my head. It's like, man, it's uh, you know, this would be really good for backpackers. It's gonna be good for people that go fishing in streams. Uh, and as I started fishing more with it, I started realizing that I could do it, you know. And um, and so I kind of set off almost immediately. Within two weeks, I started working on developing a plan, finding manufacturers, um, just really figuring out what it was gonna take to start the business. Um, You know, and in the beginning, and I should mention at this point as well, um, the book, uh, Four Hour Work Week, you know, for a little while. I think a lot of your listeners will probably know it. Um, And I think that book kind of served as a little bit of a roadmap. You know, it's uh, even though I went to business school, I had a lot of entrepreneurs in the family. uh, You know, it was a very practical book that kind of told me, you know, a different way of starting and running a business than that, than what I was used to. You know, it was uh, it was an intriguing concept where I could start the business on the side and that kind of thing. Um, but in any case, I was at this time I was working in international banking. I was working for Wells Fargo in their foreign exchange and international payments division. Uh, I started creating the business on the side, you know, like the kind of thing that I did at nighttime, and it was about. Uh, end of February 2009 so we're talking about September, October, November, December, like five, six months later um, I had put all the pieces in place and about a month before we went live I gave notice and I quit my job and I decided to go head on and go at it full time um, before we had even proven the concept. It's a bold move. You was but you know what I'll tell you, Um, I'll tell you what kind of prompted me to to do that. Uh, at the time, I was you know, about 26, I think I was. Um, and I didn't have a mortgage. Uh, no kids, I still don't have any kids, but no kids. Uh, we lived in, my wife and I, we had been married for about a year, uh, year and a half, and we didn't have much of an expense. We, t- we rented this tiny little studio apartment And based on my initial calculation, I told myself I only have to sell one rod a day uh, to make a living. (laughs) (laughs) And that number was uh, very, to me, it was just like you just had a nice ring to it. It seemed to be very attainable. And that allowed me to make the jump and just go for it.
0: Right on. Yeah, I wanted to kind of just interject a couple of of thoughts and opinions on some of the stuff you said. So, yeah, four-hour work weeks, like... A Bible for a lot of entrepreneurs. So, you know, I read it on Kindle and then bought a hard copy just because I like to make notes in there. And so I've got to, I keep it on my bedstand constantly, and I just every now and then pick it up and reread a little section. And I, what I like about that book so much is it's it just kind of gets you to think differently. You know, like you said, it shows what you can do, and it yeah, there's there's some step by step stuff in there to an extent, but it's really for me, it's more about just Kind of getting your head in a different space and letting you think what well, what if and mm-hmm.
1: yeah um, absolutely and it's uh, and I should say I mean I've been doing this for close to nine years now the four hour work week is a very alluring title but it's absolutely elusive <laughs> it doesn't oh, work yeah. <laughs> that way but but it is a different way of thinking about you know processes and um, you know how to think in terms of creating a business that's scalable and that type of thing.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, when you're excited about something though, it's like you want to do more than four hours, you know, like I find with my businesses I've got going on, like I don't mind putting in the time because it's fun and it's exciting to me. It's that, you know, the the building of something and, and it's got kind of, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, you, you mentioned you had a lot of ideas and, and I've got so many ideas. I've got notebooks filled of just like, you know, ideas and, you I think what what like what you said. You know, it, you think about it for a couple of days. You're excited about it for a couple of days, and then it's kind of like, eh, you know, it mm-hmm. sort of falls off. And it's those ideas that stick with you, and you can't get to sleep at night. And you know, two weeks later, you're still thinking about it. Like mm-hmm. those are the ones that are worth exploring a little bit further. And what I've I, I think the flip side of that is, you know, you got to look at some projects and say, okay, yeah, like the challenge could be figuring out how to do it. <coughs> But the second question should always be should i do it you know like just because i can maybe Mm -hmm. maybe i don't need to it's just sort of this intellectual challenge and let it stay at that because you know especially in the bike space we've seen a lot of products that they seem almost more like they were done because they were engineering challenges rather than a real good idea that solved the problem for people so
1: absolutely
0: Mm -hmm. just sort of a a side rant there because it's it's important like we don't need more stuff in this world just because so uh, um so uh, you answered one of my questions which was what were you doing before this and and you mentioned banking which i can imagine was probably a joy to get out of
1: (laughs) it was yeah especially
0: (laughs) around that time Uh, um so you know fast forward to to uh the getting it actually produced, like how did you find your manufacturing partners? How did you do the design? Like how did you know, you know, the the tensile strength or whatever the flexing strength of these rods what what it need to be and how the materials would do that? Like it sounds like there's a lot of engineering to go into something, mm-hmm. and like where did you start?
1: Definitely, um, yeah. So I don't have an engineering background at all, um, but I have you know a lot of fishing experience. I grew up fishing and I should mention as a kid I used rods that are not vastly different from the ones you know used in think I I mean they were telescopic and that th- type of thing there's some pretty strong differences but I you know it was not completely foreign to me this kind of uh, fishing rods um, so my my role was to kind of have the concept for the business as a, a you know in general which is to introduce this method of fishing here. And then, of course, to develop the concepts for the type of rods that we use. So the telescopic rods have been around for a long time. I was not inventing any of that. There was uh, plenty of companies that make those um, overseas. And it was a matter of tapping into those. And of course, nowadays, we are very lucky to live in an age where you know reaching out and finding the factories is Pretty easy, you know. So, Alibaba.com, I mean, that's you can reach manufacturers all over the world. Um, and uh, that's what I used to start establishing relationships with uh, manufacturers that they were not making Tenkata rods at the time, they were making other types of uh, telescopic rods. Uh, but I started reaching out to uh, several div- different manufacturers. There's roughly about 30 manufacturers that I started relationships with. Um, in order to essentially, eventually narrow it down to three. Uh, So, you know, we get 30 manufacturers that I, you know, I got samples from, um, that I developed prototypes with, uh, but after, you know, that kind of gave me the opportunity to see who had some really good rods, you know, good, good starting points for us to work with, you know, which ones were very responsive, which ones had good eye to detail, like quality control, um, and then once I've narrowed it down to three uh, factories that could help us make a, the ro- make the rods, we started delving into the concepts that I had in mind. Uh, and I thought three was an important number um, because of redundancies. And you know, if one of the the last thing you want to do as a business is put every single thing, like all your eggs in one basket, rely on one manufacturer who you don't know what their situation is. So if if one of the manufacturers Goes out of business, uh, you don't want to be out. So I started working with three manufacturers for the rods and then found other companies to help make the other components. The lines, you know, they were made here in the States. There's, you know, a lot of them are still made in the States. Uh, And then I started trying to find who could make the flies for us. And the flies are actually tied in Kenya. Uh, that's one of the centers of fly tying, so it's a very international business, uh, business in, in scope, um, and that definitely was a lot of work. It was uh, long hours spent, you know, communicating and that kind of thing. And he helped as well. That I, you know, it was not too long before that I had been living in China for a few months, um, so I studied abroad in China for several months, and when I started developing those relationships. With the manufacturers, it was also very helpful to be able to communicate with them in Chinese, which now I forget sure. <laughs> uh, most of it. And, uh, you know, we're kind of getting on the same page on most things. But in the beginning, it was very helpful as well.
0: Yeah. So when you started out and you contacted these 30 manufacturers, you know, like what did they want to see from you? Because I would just think mm-hmm. a our manufacturer and some, you know, kid called me mm-hmm. up and said, hey, I need some samples of rods. I'm starting a company. I'd be like
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> absolutely so I should say 30 is the number that I was able to establish communications with but it was a lot of uh, a lot more um, you know manufacturers that I probably tried to communicate with you know I, I, I don't know how many but there's a lot of um, emails that didn't get a reply for sure but I think the the main thing was explaining the vision you know so having a clear vision for what I was trying to do and communicating that clearly and simply uh, and getting them on board. So, um, you know, I ended up working. Two of the manufacturers were actually very new. One of them, as a matter of fact, you know, I took a little bit of a gamble on because they were just starting, getting started in business uh, as well. And, you know, I, I saw the guy that was really you know doing the design work and getting the, the plant started uh just very driven very responsive um you know we've been working together ever since so it, it's been fun to have you know another company out there on the other side of the world in china started at the same time and grow with us um, as well so um, of course if you're shooting for the very large company manufacturers you might not get the time of day um and you know you might get I don't know, it might just be hard to work with them anyway, so um, most of the manufacturers that I communicated with in the beginning were pretty small and willing to take a chance on us as we were with them as well.
0: Yeah, did it, did the selection of these just kind of come down to who would work with you or did you vet no. them in some other way? Like how? And, and what were you looking for from these manufacturers? You mentioned like quality and attention to detail, anything else?
1: um so i mean responsiveness and communication is a huge thing um you know you can overcome quality control and you know attention to detail if you have good communication so um were they responding to the emails and calls on time were they willing to make changes um you know were they uh willing to embrace kind of like your vision or or were they saying that hey this is not possible um you know so we've had you know, like out of those 30, I mean, I think all of them were willing to work with us if we had wanted uh, to, but, you know, several of them I had to cut as soon as I got the first samples, like, you know, this is shit. uh, Sorry. Uh, But, you know, so a lot of them I had to cut in the beginning, and then there were some that, you know, really wanted to work with us, but I didn't think they were ready to, you know, make things the way that we needed to, to make them. So, um, Yeah, so there's definitely some criteria, but I would imagine out of those, communication was probably the biggest one.
0: So I know ahead of time you mentioned you didn't really want to talk like sales numbers and and profits, all that, but I'm kind of curious like, you know, what are some of the, when you're starting out, like what was the minimum order size and how did you Mm -hmm. fund the launch of the company?
1: Yeah, so uh, self-funded completely, um, and we placed the initial rod, uh, rod order for about a hundred rods from each of the manufacturers. A little bit more from one of them, uh, just because we it was our main concept. So uh not a whole lot of rods uh you know 100 uh to get started with i mean it was a gamble it was most of the savings that i had at the time uh, uh, but i knew i could fall back on to getting another job if it didn't work and that kind of thing Um, so yeah pretty small uh start and then we just kind of went from there we actually became profitable in about three months um you know um, didn't take very long to sell through the first uh, batch of rods and get new ones produced and that kind of thing. And then we just have grown based on our profits ever since.
0: Did you, that first run, were they all the same style of rod or did you launch with a few different versions and sizes?
1: We launched with different versions and sizes. Um, as a matter of fact, probably too many <laughs> to, <laughs> for uh, for to begin with because I was kind of playing still with the you know, the idea of having different actions in the rods. And I made things a little bit too complicated. That was probably a small mistake that I reverted very quickly. Um, So we had uh, five, four different rod options to begin with out of those three, just because with one of the manufacturers, we decided to make pretty much the same looking rod, but two different actions. And that was kind (laughs) of silly, but yeah. uh,
0: for different options so how do you kind of uh figure out your product roadmap now like how do you decide what new products to launch which ones did this i mean the discontinue i would imagine if the sales are slow but like when you're mm-hmm. developing new products or new features how do you do that
1: yeah so we are a little bit of a unique company uh driven by my personal desires and philosophies in terms of Uh, we don't really chase the product cycle. We are very different. I don't think, I can't think of any other example, at least in the fly fishing industry, um, that does things that way. But, uh, the last rod that we have, um, released was about three years ago. And our dealers kind of hate us for that (laughs) because they, you know, like they're so used to chasing a product cycle and releasing a new rod every year and that kind of thing. So we, You know, to begin with, I mentioned Tenkara is the simple method of fly fishing. That's a big part of the the appeal of the method. Um, And I don't think it makes any sense to have a simple method of fly fishing but keep releasing new rods every year. That just doesn't go together, in my opinion. Uh, So the line up of rods that we have, um, each rod should have a very um, – a very specific goal, you know, what is it gonna do, and she have very little overlap with the other rods. Uh, so right now we have five rods that we offer. Uh, mostly they're different based on the length of the rod, um, and then there's a couple of specialized rods for like bigger fish kind of thing, so very little overlap. Um, and with this number, I kind of feel like we might eventually bring it up, bring it up to six because there's one rod, that I think is gonna uh, fit in our lineup without having overlap with the other rods. But in the past, anytime we've launched a new rod, we've cut another one. Um, You know, just trying to keep the number of choices as small as possible. Uh, My goal, (laughs) if I could, you know, it's a very unrealistic one, but it would be to have only one rod choice. (laughs) That would be ideal, you know, From an operations point of view, you know, like inventory management and that kind of thing would be so much nicer. But then from a customer point of view, you know, like the decision making, it's not as confusing and intimidating, overwhelming. Um, Yeah, so we we don't chase the product cycle. I mean, we probably should. I'm sure we lose a lot of sales because we don't have a new rod every year, especially now that we are seeing more competitors. Um, I, I'm starting to see more and more of why companies do that, why they have to release a new product every year. But the last couple of rounds that we released, I mean, we kicked it out of the ballpark and they're really good. And I just have a hard time seeing, you know, what else to bring on. And it's kind of a silly thing. Um, but that's just how I run the company right now.
0: Yeah. I feel like maybe special editions, you know, or limited edition colors or something mm-hmm. tied to a charity, you know, just those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Because, I would guess it's, are these collector's items as well to an extent, like people kind of like having
1: different versions
0: of the same thing?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, and and to be fair, we are kind of starting to change our strategy a little bit. So, you know, a little background on on what informed that kind of product management uh, decision, uh, if you will. Uh, For the first three years in business, we had no competitors, you know, and then very slowly, kind of competitors started appearing. and when you do have a competitor, it kind of puts the flames under your feet to kind of innovate. And we have done a really a couple of very unique concepts on our last couple of rods that nobody is able to emulate, and we have intellectual property uh, taken on those. Uh, but yeah, at this point, we're starting to put on a product management, you know, hat again, product development hat, and that's why we have a, a new rod that's in the works for the next couple of months. Um, but absolutely, like, you know, special editions would be very, very popular way to go. Uh, the rods tend to become collector items, as you say. Uh, we do have a couple of rods uh, that we've released in the past that people really want, and that's one of the new rods is gonna be based on that idea. So there's a lot of different ways to approach it. Um, you know, it's, uh, to me, that's the thing that I'm personally, uh, as a CEO, struggling the most with. Uh, at the moment is how to put a good product management strategy in place where I'm not losing my mind you know, managing <laughs> product inventory and, you know, all the stuff that comes when a new rod is released. Uh, and I'm currently working on trying to figure that piece out or, you know, see if I'm going to bring somebody on board to take on that, uh, that part of the, uh, the work and so forth. So it's, that's what I'm actively working on right now.
0: Yeah, that's funny because it kind of answers one of my my newer questions that I want to start asking everybody is you know is there an operational challenge that keeps you up at night oh, yeah it, it sounds like maybe that's it but is there is there something else about running the company that you're just really struggling to figure out or
1: um that one is definitely the biggest one I mean that's uh you know and it's been going on for a little bit longer than I that I'm proud to admit you know I, I think <laughs> I've been struggling with our uh product management for you know like a year and a half uh or so and it's something that as a company we know we have to get better at you know in terms of forecasting and uh ordering the product and just managing all the stuff that goes with the existing product so that we also start having the capability to release new products without being scared of breaking everything so it's um that is by far the biggest challenge that we have. And then in terms of marketing, I think we have a little bit of challenges with confusion in the marketplace um, that we're trying to address as well. You know, like when one of our competitors has a very generic name, uh, Tenkata Rod Company. But we are the original Tenkata Rod Company, so we're trying to figure out how to uh, stand out because, you know, we're the first ones here. and. Um, just trying to get we're getting attacks from all sides so so that's um a challenge that we are facing right now too
0: can you not trademark tenkara because it's a style or like how are they allowed to have such a similar name
1: yeah so tenkara is a style it's a descriptive term so we cannot trademark it uh we do have the trademark for tenkara usa uh, Tinkara Rod Company, you know, it's a generic name. They cannot trademark the name, <laughs> um, so they cannot protect it. We could actually start calling ourselves the same thing if we wanted to, uh, but we, we're not gonna go there. Um, but yeah, unfortunately we couldn't, uh, you know, trademark a descriptive term.
0: Yeah, it seems like you could just you know, do a, a real big kind of online scheme, you know, the original Tinkara Rod Company and just sort of steal their thunder mm-hmm. by seo trickery
1: <laughs> exactly and that's kind of uh, one of the the things that we're trying to do and then we're focusing a lot on you know like more of a content strategy uh putting out new videos podcasts you know um good uh blog posts and that kind of thing
0: yeah it's a good segue to the marketing so i was going to ask you how you kind of get the word out and then i definitely want to talk about the media that you guys are producing around this style of fishing because you know your, the instruction booklet that comes with the rods is amazing. It's you know the little magazine pamphlet thing is Thank just you. gorgeous. I mean, it's the products that you put out to support your products are you know like I'm jealous of how good they look. And I run a media company.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. that that's uh, that's kind of you, Tyler. Um, yeah. So you know to begin with, I mean, introducing a foreign concept, you know, creating a new category. Within the outdoor industry, um, you know, we knew that we were going to have to educate the customer, you know, to introduce the concept here. Um, so we started releasing videos to begin with, a lot of videos, a lot of writing, you know, uh, mostly through our blog at a time, um, and then we just kind of kept that up and kept trying to put more information that would educate people uh, about the method of fishing, and I often take, you know, like oftentimes I like to take a an approach of, you know, trying to create something fun and beautiful um, without oftentimes without thinking too much about the costs, you know, and the return on investment. It's like the little booklet. It's like, oh man, we got to create some booklet that people people can take home and read, and you know, it might look even good in a little coffee table. Um, And it's, you know, I didn't think about returns on investment on that, but it's definitely paid off because a lot of people keep it and they pass it around and that kind of thing. Um, And then we tried a magazine for uh, three years. We have a book. So always trying to create something unique um, and just fun for for our customers.
0: Yeah. Do you use these to specifically explain why your products are like you know, better than the competition in some way? Or is it really just kind of more about like making people aware of the activity and then hopefully they'll circle back to buying your rods versus a competitor?
1: Yeah, so mostly we really focus on um, the activity, you know, spreading the word about and kind of creating the market still. Um, That's, uh, yeah, like, you know, like in the literature, we, you know, we take a very soft sales kind of approach. Uh, We're not super brash. um, you know, just doesn't really fit my personality. So usually, that kind of comes across the same way in our marketing. Um, yeah, just kind of educating people, and hopefully they'll, you know, like what we put the put out, and they'll, they'll like the quality of our product and the customer service that we provide, and so forth, and uh, support us by reward us by buying our rods. It's uh, I always. In love when people say, "Hey, I've been watching your videos for like a long time, and I just finally bought one of your rods, and it's uh, really nice." When people do that,
0: yeah, kind of a long tail game. Are there some specific marketing activities or tools that you use that show up you know, a clearly show a good ROI?
1: Um, so the little booklet, I think, uh, you know, to. Describe to the listeners, I mean, this is just a little five by five, you know, square booklet printed in, you know, nice quality. Um, You know, it's hard to really quantify because it's printed and it lives out there. Uh, But I do believe the return on that has been really good. Um, How
0: How do you get those out to people?
1: yeah so those are we do a lot of trade shows you know so um and by trade shows i mean like consumer shows you know that are open to the public uh the fly fishing shows and so forth uh that's one venue uh dealer or dealer network we have about 120 stores that we currently work with uh that's another way to uh get it out um so yeah that's you know and that's mostly people that uh are a little easier to reach and of course we have to supplement that with online marketing and so forth but uh you know the videos i mean uh, i should probably mention a video video is such a powerful medium that you know it's easy for people to share with their friends whether they like it or not you know that, mm. uh people might share it and make fun of it but one of their friends might like it and uh, it just gets around and we've had um i think less than looked like all of our videos have had like over five million views um, wow. over you know, the last several years um, and that's been definitely a good way to get the word about ourselves out.
0: All right, I'm, I'm curious, I'm assuming you put these videos up on YouTube,
1: yeah? Yeah, absolutely, YouTube and Facebook and Vimeo. Yeah. All right, yeah. so
0: this is one question I've had and maybe you don't do it, do you run ads against those videos
1: on YouTube? Uh, not on YouTube right now, we're doing ads with videos on Facebook. Facebook. Actually, we do have a little bit of ad budget going on to the videos on YouTube, but I'm well,
0: not. Uh... No, let me clarify. So, like, if I'm watching one of your videos on YouTube, am I going to see ads popping up, or does there a pre-roll on your videos?
1: No, I don't think you will. No, not All right. right now. Yeah, yeah I've it's coming.
0: Probably... I, I asked because I'm always curious, like what the the mindset is on that when a brand puts out a video to promote their mm-hmm. product and then they run. They let YouTube run ads on it because yeah, it, it oh, seems see, like it just deletes the message. Oh so, yeah,
1: yeah, I see what you mean. Like the monetization that some brands. Yeah, we don't yeah. do any of that. That's for sure. Um, but with five yeah. million
0: views, like you'd actually be making some decent money, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I don't know what your revenue I, is. so I don't know if it'd move the needle, but <laughs> most I, I people have, would.
1: I yeah. have thought about it. Yeah, it's uh, you know from the beginning. It's like I'm not gonna run other companies' ads on our videos, you know, because you're right. It absolutely. Would dilute the message, would distract the customer, you know, maybe take it away from our, you know, our work. Right. Um, but yeah. I have thought about it recently. Like our first video, it was a, it was actually almost a year ago. The first video that I put out on YouTube hit a million views, and I was like, man, I should have totally like ran ads. On that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much money would have come from that, but uh, who knows if if you would have distracted people or not? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Right. So I want to jump back to the sales. The first sales that you did when you got those first batches in, was that, how were you doing that? Did you already have retail contracts lined up? Were you going door to door trying to get stores to carry it, direct to consumer?
1: Uh, No. So we, in the beginning, uh, we did really well with uh, PR essentially, you know. So this is a pretty much the only really new thing in the fly fishing industry. Um, you know, like one of the magazines that covered us at the time said this is the only new thing in fly fishing in about 30 years <laughs> you know, since the introduction of spay fishing, which is this Scottish method of fishing, if you will. Um, so the fly fishing industry was craving a little bit of content in that sense, I think. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, I had a there's a lot of buzz going on before we went live and the word started getting around that we were. Gonna launch, and this is way before Kickstarter, way before any of the stuff that would allow you to pre-launch, you know, a brand. Um, but the word was getting around in like forums, and the word of mouth, you know, uh, was getting around. So when we launched April twelfth, two thousand nine, we had a nice, you know, spike in sales. Like the first week was like great, you know, we sold a good number of rods, and then. And then it's like the sales kind of started dipping and it kind of made me realize, it's like, well, yeah, I'm not really doing that much marketing. So I started reaching out to all the editors of fly fishing magazines and we started getting really good coverage and uh, and then that word of mouth really kind of made us take off. I mean, it was, uh, um, we were exclusively selling directly to consumers for the first three years in our business. Um, we did not approach, and we actually still do not approach any, any shops um, directly. We, uh, we don't have a sales force. It's a little bit of a unique model where we focus a lot on the marketing, getting the word out to consumers. And then over the years, you know over time, consumers see our brand and they go to their favorite shop and they ask for it, and then those shops reach out to us. Uh, but we don't do any proactive sales um, right now actually. What
0: are some of the retail chains that we might have heard of that carry your product?
1: Um, so LL Bean carries our rods, uh, Orvis, Backcountry.com. Uh, you know, so those are like the national ones. Uh, and then we have um and then we have two kind of groups of shops. Um, right now, for the most part, we work with fly shops, you know, fly fishing sh- uh, stores, and we're starting to get in more and more into. You know, outdoor specialty uh, stores like the climbing shop, the backpacking kind of store, um, that don't traditionally carry any fishing gear. Uh, you know, it's it's there for for the backpacker, the climber who's going to go on a trip, and they all of a sudden they realize that hey, you know, there's going to be water there, and it would be fun to fish, so they buy <laughs> rods to those customers. And those are actually some of our best shops in the country right now, um, the ones that. Have traditionally not carried any fishing gear.
0: Nice. The when you started was your pricing kind of similar to what it is now, or or were you pricing around a direct to consumer model?
1: No, no, pretty much uh, same same pricing. We've had very few changes in pricing. Uh, pricing has been um, the same since we launched, and and we try to keep a mix. Um, I. I really aim to have about 70% of our sales still going direct to consumer. Um, you know, we do a really good job at connecting directly with people who are interested um, in going out and fly fishing. Um, and then the 30%, as our sales kind of grow, we start taking on new shops, but always aiming to keep that kind of ratio Um our business
0: was there any weirdness uh like with the pricing thing when you started selling the shops like did you have the margin or did you have to take a, uh, a pretty big hit
1: uh we took a hit i mean we do have the margin you know to support it um uh, you know like that was part of the plan to begin with uh you know eventually we're gonna sell to shops as well i'm sure so we did build in the uh the margin to support that but it's but it's definitely you know a big hit i mean it is um, you know, it's kind of amazing, uh, what a difference that makes, uh, of course, you know, selling to consumers directly is I prefer that just cause we had the direct relationship, but you know, the margins to support more marketing initiatives and, and customer service and that kind of thing. Yeah. So,
0: and your, your customers, if I remember right, you put on a, like a fly fishing event periodically. I don't think it's an annual thing right? It's exactly, sort of, yeah. Is it like a customer appreciation or is it just a, a paid trip that anybody that fly fishes can jump on?
1: Um, yeah, so it's kind of like a customer appreciation and, you know, that's um, part of what it is. So it's called the Tenkara Summit. Um, and we have tried to do it an annual thing. We actually, since we started doing that event uh, every year in 2011, we held it every year. We only skipped last year because there's just kind of like a, World wind of a, of a year, and I just you know, have the resources to put it together in terms of our staffing. We're all kind of spread thin. Uh, but we'll probably just, we'll try to do it every year. So the last one that we held was just now in September, September 16th, and we had about 300 people coming from all over the country, uh, and actually from a couple of different countries as well. But 300 people come together, and what this is, it's a it's a gathering of tenkara anglers, you know, just customers and non-customers. I mean, people that enjoy this method of fly fishing or being wanted to get into fly fishing. Um, and then we have presentations and demos, and some vendors come and join us. Um, and most of it is an excuse for people to get together and fish. You know, mm-hmm. That's what it is.
0: And is it a money-making venture for you, or is it more of a marketing play?
1: It's a marketing play. Yeah. it's uh, you know it, it's nice if we break even, but uh, huh. or you know if we make a little bit of money. But it really is kind of like a, just let's get people together and um, you know support our brand and see how people are feeling about it and that kind of thing. Do you
0: seed your product with uh, you know guides and outfitters to you know kind of like a product placement thing where hopefully their customers will see it and want to buy it.
1: You know, I should be better at doing that. Um, I think there's a lot of value in doing that. Um, and it's something that I've wanted to do more and more. Uh, we do seed it a little bit. Um, uh, but as I mentioned a little bit earlier, like it's not like we have a ton of new product you know, or opportunities where we do that. Um, but we're, I think we're pretty good at working with uh, guides that are interested in fly fishing, or in Tenkara specifically, Um to make it very accessible for them to get into it and play with it and that kind of thing. Um, I could probably be better at doing that part of it, the the relationship building with guides and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, what about pros? Is there such a thing as a pro fly fisher? Like I'm just envisioning somebody with the logo jacket like the bass fisher, (laughs) (laughs) the big shiny boat, but it's probably totally... (laughs) (laughs) antagonistic to what you guys are promoting but
1: you you know it kind of is but I mean there's definitely a lot of uh, pros I mean there's a lot of fly fishing guides right so uh, around the country and uh, on the one hand it is a little bit antagonistic because you know the whole point of Tenkara uh, has been to tell people hey you know you can fly fish very simply very inexpensively it doesn't take a whole lot of time to learn it Um, you know so there's that message but on the other hand you know, anytime you go out with somebody who knows more than you, your learning curve just gets really steep and you learn a ton, right? So there's a lot of value if you can afford it, if you if you enjoy that, to go out with a guide uh, for a day or something, um, and you can pick up tons of tricks. You can just learn. You know, like I I taught myself how to fly fish, and the stuff that probably took me a year to learn, I probably could have learned over, you know, weekend, you know, with a guide. Um, so there's definitely value in that. And we do have a network of guides, um, you, know, you know, what we call a Tenkara Guide Network. And it's a program that I started a couple of years ago. Um, you know, we pro- I forget how many guides we have now, like 40 or something uh, that are part of the network. Um, and that's come out as a result of customers reaching out to us saying, hey, I want to learn more you know, about Tenkara. Um, Is there anybody in this area that can teach me? And to a certain extent, those relationships kind of sprung out naturally through the forum. Like when people put out a question, somebody would be like, hey, I can take you out uh, if they're friends. But we started getting so many of those requests that we started reaching out to a few guides that we knew were Tenkara fishing and just seeing if they wanted to be part of this network. And that's been a pretty successful program actually uh, just a you know it's a win-win i mean it's uh those guys are spreading the word about Tankara. uh we are referring clients to them so uh and then a customer gets to meet somebody who knows their stuff
0: is there a place in your business where you'd like to be more efficient
1: or productive yeah uh i think definitely going back to the product management you know which is top of my mind right now um I mean, that's as a company, you know, as a company, not myself, uh, personally. I think my, you know, uh, where I would like to become more efficient at, and I was just having this conversation with one of my staff, uh, you know, one of my goals for this next year is to become very prolific with uh, content creation. Um, I enjoy it, you know, I enjoy creating videos and doing a podcast, uh, doing some writing. I enjoy those you know the creative part of it a lot um and i'd like to become have the energy to do more of it and i think i have to find ways to free up more of my more of my time to do that so is
0: there a product or service that you think could help you do that
1: um a product or service that can help me do that it, you know it's it's tricky to to know so it in the past, you know, since I've started, you know, especially, as I mentioned, the four-hour workweek model, I started a company always looking at what serv- what outside services, products, and people, you know, can help us grow the business in a scalable way. So our our current staff, you know, like internal staff is a pretty small team, like six core people. Uh, and I've always kind of like outsourced different functions, you know. So we have a firm... Doing the online marketing for us, and we have another company doing fulfillment. You know, we have a warehouse close to my home here, but uh, we don't manage our own shipping of product. I don't want to do that. You know, so there's all these outside services and products that can definitely help. But more and more, I think I've been seeing the, uh, I think the value in having like internal resources that are trained and committed and devoted uh, to the mission. Um, so I'm kinda starting to think that it's like not so much products and services from outside as much as the need to develop the internal human resources. Um, and I might be completely wrong on that. You know, maybe the four hour work week is the way to go. I like the idea of a remote team. Actually most of our all of our team is entirely remote in different parts of the country. Um, you know, we have somebody in California, somebody in Montana. Um, right now, it's pretty much myself here in Boulder, and then one person that helps me part time. Um, but I think the having a you know, like an internal team in the same place, there's a lot of value to that. Yeah. For right now, with your current
0: setup and everyone remote, what kind of tools do you guys use to kind of communicate and build some sort of corporate culture?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I'm not very good at that part of it, uh, you know, to, uh, to develop that. I mean, we, we're very like-minded people that get along really well and seem to get on the page, on the same page very quickly. Um, so I've been very fortunate to find really good people uh, to work with. And we communicate primarily just, you know, emails and we trade we actually put a lot of documents on Google Drive, you know, to share processes and things that are going on, and we have some systems, but I don't know if we have something that we're excelling at. I mean, we try to, you know, get together a few times a year, um, you know, just to kind of have that corporate culture kind of coming out of it, but I can't say we're the best company to talk to about that stuff.
0: <laughs> just stepping back a little bit, what are some of the startup challenges you faced, and how did you overcome them?
1: Um yeah I think you know I think it's kind of funny like you know I' laughing laughing at myself a little bit when I when I think about that question because I kind of feel like the some of the startup challenges are the same as the challenges that we have right now in terms of getting on top of managing product cycles and that kind of thing uh, so that's kind of funny because you know like we we were very fortunate to have uh, very high demand for our product yeah. Um and but as a result you know and and also that coupled with growing just based on profits um has probably kind of held us back a little bit uh in terms of you know selling out a product when we still have demand going for it and that kind of thing um and i think myself too like personally as an entrepreneur who likes to do a lot of things um i think i've Constantly, and like especially in the beginning, but still to this day, I'm um, always a bottleneck in a lot of things, and I'm always trying to remove myself as the bottleneck. Uh, but that's definitely a challenge that we face.
0: What What are you bottleneck in particular? Like, if you could delegate something <laughs> big tomorrow, what would it be?
1: <laughs> Product management. <that's>, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so what I am good at, I'm, I'm very good at trusting people. Once I get start working with them and uh and i'm very good at not micromanaging at all uh, once i get that off my plate but i'm very bad at um thinking and identifying the things that I, i should be pushing on to somebody else uh once i know that somebody is in place and i can just give them direction and and they'll kind of go with it um hands off but uh yeah like for example this product management stuff, and I keep using this example, but I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones. Um, it's one of those things that I do okay with, you know, like and I can just kind of create the spreadsheets and keep an, eyes on the, an eye on the numbers, but because I can do okay with those functions, um, sometimes it's hard for me to think, hey, somebody should be doing this a little bit better. And of course, I've already identified this as being a challenge that I have to pass on to somebody else now it's more a matter of identifying the right person to help me with it.
0: Um. Yeah. I don't think you're alone on that. I mean, I, I struggle with that with the stuff I'm doing for bike Roomer and some other projects I want is that like I can do it. So I just end up doing it because I, it, it, it's tough for me to think about how to delegate that or, or find the right people or, or afford the right people. I think that's one mm-hmm. thing a lot of younger, you know, not young in age, but like new entrepreneurs with young companies, Mm-hmm. You know, if, especially if you're growing off of profits, It's like, how do you know when you're at a point when you can afford to hire somebody else on and, and go through that learning curve?
1: Yeah, there's definitely that. And, and to be fair, like you know, I've um, you know, I kind of have gone the way of pushing uh, pushing the stuff off my plate, and unfortunately, you know, I have had uh, a couple of false starts. You know, and that's always tough. I mean, when you start you know, you figure out, okay, I can pay somebody, I can bring somebody on, and you identify a person that you think is gonna work out, especially in a small team, and that doesn't produce, uh, or it's not a fruitful relationship, that's, uh, those setbacks, you know, are always tough, because it's like, okay, I've pushed it on to somebody else, but man, that person is not producing the way they should, it's probably time to, you know, stop working with that person and take it back on, and it's much harder to do it a second or a third time, Um, but yeah, you know, I think, uh, identifying, you know, the structure of like, how can I compensate that person, you know, fairly and appropriately and so forth, um, and then have the money to do it. That's definitely, it can be a challenge, um, especially when you think you can do it yourself. Um, but yeah, that's just learning. That's my weakness, and I'm very open about that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when you had somebody that you you delegated something to, and then you, how long did it take? Well, I, I don't know how long did it take, but like, how did you know this person was not the right fit? Like, what were some of the telltale signs? And, and did you act quickly, or did you let it linger for too long?
1: Uh, I think I've yeah, I've acted pretty quickly. Um, you know, like. And, and, and it's always a little bit hard to know exactly what it is. Um, but, you know, so much of it comes down to management style. I mean, I just, you know, like I uh, I probably get a little fed up very quickly when I have to give a lot of direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like I there, there's definitely, you know, I've had a lot of experience with some really great people that, you know, you you say the first word and they seem to get it and they run with it and produce really good results. And I think because of that, once a, once in a while, you start working with somebody who you have to give a ton of direction to. And that to me is always very hard. And I usually cut it off pretty quickly um, just because I don't have much patience. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was going to say, uh, it takes a lot of patience. But you know, I, I, that's a good one though. Like I like that because I'm the same way. I want to say it one time. Or, you know, if I need to show them explicitly how to do it, then mm-hmm. after that, like, mm-hmm. they should know how to do it. And
1: yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I can, I'm sure I can be better at it. But it's, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't mind. Of course, there's training, and, I, and I'm actually very patient in a training phase. But once it starts becoming clear that it's not getting done um, quickly or with, little direction um or specific directions i should say then it's then it's tough because it's like i don't want to be spending as much time directing work as it's going to take me to do the work so that's um
0: yeah it it seems like the enthusiasm level you know if 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 during training they're enthusiastic and they get it then like for me it seems to come down to gut feel right versus Mm -hmm. If you feel like you're really having to kind of force somebody to be there or force somebody to learn, it's just Mm -hmm. not
1: probably the right thing for them or you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, it's uh, absolutely. I think it's, you know, and I I think some people probably argue that there's a process, you know, as opposed to gut feel. Um, For the most part, you know, what has worked best for me is when I've had the chance to start slowly working with people on smaller projects and then start getting to To know how the person works and uh, build that kind of chemistry, and just kind of start noticing that the person delivers, um, you know. Like so, to use an example, like I think the last person that I brought on board was being with us for a little while is our designer, and you know we started working on a couple little projects, but you know he was just on top of it. And I mean Jeremy still with us, and we worked on our book together, um, and it's it's a joy to be able to give a little direction with, to somebody he gets excited about, he starts running with it, um, you know, and that's always fun. So I think working with somebody like that is it's ideal. But, of course, that's not always feasible because you have to oftentimes bring somebody on full-time, you know, to have their time. Um, so it's, yeah, it's always something that I'm struggling with trying to figure out how to get better at. But for me, it's, you know, like this whole business. I mean, it's, uh, I mentioned I went to business school and and I still treat my business as a learning opportunity. Um, You know, it's just always trying to learn how to do things. Um, And I'm okay with that. It's a little tough, but it's fun to, to figure things out, even if it's the hard way sometimes.
0: What advice would you give to somebody that, an entrepreneur that wants to do something similar to what you're doing?
1: Uh, you know, just get started. (laughs) You know, that's, that's always the hardest thing. Um, you know, like there's so many fears and there's so many unknowns and there's so much thinking that you can put into things, uh, before you even take the first step. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of like riding a bike. I mean, sometimes you know, like, Oh yeah, it's like windy out or it's kind of cold out. And I don't know if I want to hop on my bike and the first paddle you know or just mounting a bike is always the hardest part of it for me um and i think i see that a lot with people that mention they have an idea for a business um and you're not going to know what it is until or how it's going to go until you take the first step um and i think that holds a lot of us back you know like we think of something that would be cool um and then we just don't do anything on that um but just take the first step and start seeing where it takes you and do it for fun you know that's uh, that helps a lot
0: Uh, i like it that's a great note to wrap up on so thanks a ton for your time daniel i appreciate it It was awesome talking to you
1: You yeah thanks so much for uh for having a chance to talk to you about it and continue the good work i really enjoy listening to your podcast
0: Coming up the recap for this episode reminds me of comedian Kevin Hart's stand-up routine called Laugh at My Pain. Because as a serial entrepreneur, I share Daniel's pain of how to delegate. I'm my own worst enemy some days because I take the easy route of just doing it myself rather than taking the time to coach someone else, which takes a lot longer up front. The problem is I end up doing the same things over and over and over again ultimately using up way more precious hours than if I'd simply trained someone well. Part of our fear of delegating comes from the risk of going through all that training and then not having that person work out. Then we have to start all over again, which to many of us just feels like wasting time which is the most excruciating type of pain. So, you could think of it like potty training your kids. It takes time, but you certainly don't want to be doing that for them for the rest of your life, right? Which is why it's important to find the right person to begin with, so you only have to do it once. Kind of like leaving a review of the build cycle on your podcast player. You only need to do it once, but it helps me grow this thing for years to come and keep getting better guests for you. Could you hit that subscribe button real quick and leave me a rating and review? Thanks. Here's hoping you caught something you can use to grow your business. Until next time, keep building.